Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hello again. This is Jay Shapiro. Thanks for listening. I want to say a few things about the fact that we are in a never-ending war with the Palestinians. Israel has been forced into five rounds of warfare against enemies in the Gaza Strip since Hamas overthrew the Palestinian Authority and conquered Gaza in the year 2007. This, of course, was the result of of mistakes made by our leadership more than 10 years before that, when uh, they got involved with uh, an agreement with a terrorist organization, an agreement that was approved by the United States and other countries, and for which our leaders, and also a terrorist leader, won the Nobel Peace Prize, which gives you an idea of how much the Peace Prize is worth. Anyhow, the latest round of warfare was called Operation Breaking Dawn. Israel gives names to all the warfares that break out. It was a short round that was fought several weeks ago. What should be Israel's strategic takeaway? What did we learn or could we learn from this? And the answer, I think, is this. Israel must be willing to continually degrade the enemy military capabilities because they are there. We are surrounded by enemies. Part of it is due to our own mistakes, but they are there, and we have to degrade their ability to harm us. We must have operation after operation, day after day, night after night, in a campaign of unremitting attrition meant to crush the radical Islamic armies seeking to set up shop permanently on our borders. That includes Gaza and includes the West Bank. This means much more than what they call mowing the grass, which are intermittent military operations meant to weed the enemy fields that Israel has engaged in until now. It means much more than occasional bombings meant to temporarily deter the enemy and bring periods of quiet to residents, particularly in Israel's outlying areas, like along the Gaza Strip. What it means is a steady and regular war between wars against Hamas, Islamic Jihad, and other enemy armies. It means nightly raids on jihadist weapons storehouses, on their factories, and on their training camp. It means no respite between Operation Breaking Dawn and the next operation, whenever that will be. It means, of course, endangering our own soldiers almost on a daily basis. After all, this is the way Israel operates against jihadists and other terrorist enemies in Judea and Samaria, in Syria and in Iraq. There is absolutely, unfortunately, no respite 
between one operation and the next. It's only because of nightly Israeli army raids on jihadist cells in Jenin, Nablus, and Hebron that Israelis and Palestinians alike live a daily life of relative calm. Otherwise, the West Bank would become Gaza. It is only thanks to weekly Israeli aerial bombings and ground operations against Iranian-backed militias, Iranian Revolution Guard Corps employments, and Iranian arms shipment running through Syria and Iraq, which are en route to Hezbollah in Lebanon. It's only because of these endless raids that Israelis in Tel Aviv live a life of relative calm and prosperity. Otherwise, all of Israel would become a living hell. Israel must ensure that the West Bank is not militarized over the long term. With its own forces, an act to bring about demilitarization of problems, areas like Gaza and Sinai. None of this is possible without a strong and permanent Israeli military imprint on all fronts. Israel must act with unrelenting ruthlessness and project endless grit in this continuous war, this endless war against terrorist armies, while maintaining a healthy and resilient Israeli home front despite ongoing military offensives and enemy missile attacks. By the way, I say this knowing that my own grandchildren are either actively in the military or called into reserve duty to, to strike at the terrorists. If this sounds militaristic, we have to become accustomed to it. This is the necessary Israeli strategy. This is the Israeli reality. It is the only true path to Israeli security and ultimately to regional peace. Given a situation of multiple threats from implacable non-state enemies who encroach on Israel's borders and are ideologically opposed to peace with Israel, groups like Hamas, Hezbollah, Islamic Jihad, Al-Qaeda, and the Islamic State of Iraq Given the feebleness and fecklessness of the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, given an environment where many Arab and Islamic states, all the way from Marrakesh to Bangladesh, are beset by instability, Israel's strategic posture must remain resolute. Especially in the changed international environment, we now have a Biden administration which courting Iran and providing Israel with, with only subdued backing, and in the changed domestic environment, we have internal political deadlock here in Israel. We're going to our fifth election in two and a half years. Israel must demonstrate that it is not defensive. Its leadership, even if it's only a temporary government, must remain clear-eyed, and Israel must retain freedom of action against any and all enemies. 
Now, Israel has signed the Abraham Accords as peace partners. These are Arab countries, and they're closely watching these conflicts, too, and they're judging Israel. They ask themselves whether Israel is going to appropriately crush Hamas and Islamic Jihad the way it normally would, or is Israel hamstrung by the conditions described above? A weak Israel is far less attractive as a friend to the governments Abu Dhabi, Manama, Marrakesh, and Riyadh. Of course, such tough military action raises internal international troubles with the European Union, the American ultra-progressives, and other critics always yelling about the unacceptable use of disproportionate force by Israel. Israel must turn down such reproaches. The demand for proportionality in military conflict seems to be a nonsensical special law cynically applied only to Israel, as if Israel were in a sportsman-like joust with Islamic Jihad, and we can't overpower them. And the UN, the EU, the European Union, always talk about proportionality. Do European Union governments demand proportionality response from their own police SWAT forces when they hunt down homegrown terrorists and airport bombers in Paris or Brussels or Marseille? Moreover, these are the same politicians who have not been much moved to outrage about Syrian or Iranian atrocities at any time over the past several decades and who celebrated Obama's disastrous deal with Iran as a great achievement and want to bring it back. It was done away with by by uh, Trump. The, the European governments in particular are truly self-righteous and especially angry only when Israel is involved in a military altercation. The hypocrisy of such critics is astounding. They talk about the inexcusable use of force on both sides, condemnation of the proverbial cycle of violence, and they call on all sides for restraint. To do so is to immorally equate acts of aggression and retaliation against us. There is no comparison between the celebratory and indiscriminate use of force by the terrorist organizations and Israel's reluctant and judicious use of force. It is profane to equate Islamic Jihad's abuse of their own and of Israeli civilians in attacking Israel with Israel's care, the care that Israel takes in discriminating between terrorist attackers and civilian protesters. Israel discriminates between them. Our enemies do not. It is particularly wrong that those in the international community who insist on the importance of the 1967 lines seem to sympathize with attempts to rupture that same line. What value is Western support for Israel's so-called right to exist within secure and recognized borders if these borders cannot be defended? And why would Israel even consider West Bank with the Jerals 
if it has no support for a robust defense of those shrunken borders? What if tens of thousands of West Bank Palestinians try border-rushing assaults or rocket attacks from east to western Jerusalem or missile attacks from Samaria into Tel Aviv? All of these things are possible. Then Israel must beware and prevent them. So, Israel needs not apologize for defending itself vigorously, using whatever it can against Hamas's tunnels and rockets and missiles and incendiary balloons and airborne bombs and all the other tricks they have, nor for the targeted assassination that Israel does of Islamic Jihad Hamas and Fatah terrorist leaders, nor for the tragic but unavoidable deaths of Palestinian civilians behind whom these terrorists are purposely hiding. Not for the North Israel apologize for the inadvertent death of a journalist who, who embedded herself in the line of fire during an anti-terrorist operation. Now, if all this that I've said sounds militaristic, so what? We have to get used to it. This is the necessary Israeli strategic posture. This is the Israeli reality in which we live. The only true path to Israeli security and ultimately to regional peace, to strike at our enemies on a daily basis, particularly their leadership. Now, Israel's hand is always outstretched for peace with modern Arabs who view Israel as a legitimate home of the Jewish people, who understand Israel as a leading force of regional stability and prosperity. These are the kind of people who made the Abrahamic Partnership for Peace possible. There are such people, but in the meantime, there are terrorist leaders who must be destroyed. By the way, speaking about the operation called Breaking Dawn, it was only three days long, and uh, it was a tremendous success. The targets were chosen carefully and struck surgically. Iron Dome intercepted 96% of the rockets on their way to civilian centers, and when it came to public diplomacy, the government's response was quick and smooth. The way it uh, handled what was going on uh, gives hope that strategic mistakes of the past will hopefully remain in the past and not recur again. By the way, uh, Hamas did not join in the terrorism which the three-day war uh, broke. Unlike what, what some would have you believe, Hamas's decision not to fight should not be interpreted as a sign of moderation or weakness or a sudden desire to build up the lives of the population in Gaza. It did not suddenly come to terms with Israel's existence or decide that it wants to put behind its terrorist past. You can be assured that Hamas is contemplating ways to attack Israel even now, to kill and kidnap Israelis, 
and worked to amass more rockets and weapons inside Gaza while digging tunnels along the border. This is still their intent, what they want to do. But what it does mean is that Hamas might have become a bit more pragmatic, in part because it needs to continue rebuilding its infrastructure, but also continue to manage the Gaza Strip. There are 14,000 Palestinians crossing Gaza into Israel, and uh, they need to make a living. And the obviously the leadership didn't want to risk all of that over the whims of Islamic Jihad. When it wants to, there is no doubt that Hamas will initiate a conflict. Right now, they simply see there's no reason for it at the moment. Now, that's why this situation presents Israel an opportunity, but also a risk. There's little doubt that another conflict, outright war, is just a matter of time. Since Israel withdrew from Gaza in 2005, the story has only been one of war and bloodshed, an operation taking place on the average once every two years. The question is, can that cycle be broken? That is the question that Israelis should be asking themselves. By the way, something very interesting, really unusual, happened during the last um, time that Israelis went into uh, a Palestinian city. They uh, they killed the terrorists there, but the Israeli army has uh, service dogs, particularly Belgian shepherds, and there was one named Zili. Every website ran a story on Zili, and every newspaper ran a story about the dog the following day. The dog was killed during the Israeli um, action in um, uh, in the West Bank. And the, uh, one Hebrew daily dedicated almost the entire bottom half of its front page to what it called a four-legged hero. One news TV showed asked Zilli's hand or what year the dog enlisted in what's called Yamam. Dogs don't enlist, people enlist. Dogs are born, trained, and put to work. Even the prime minister put out a statement writing that Zilli was part of a unit, was loved, was professional, and the prime minister said he, the dog, will be missed. The whole thing is kind of weird. It's perfectly fine to report on the death of a dog during a military operation, but the question is, have we not gone a bit overboard? Is it possible that Israelis have lost some sense of proportion? Uh, the uh, the the loss of a dog. I know, uh, having been a dog owner for many many years, I know how attached you can become. And by the way, these military dogs are are trained for years. They can sniff out bombs and they can help soldiers. They all kind of things. 
I have a friend who's one of the dog trainers, but uh, the the uh, the way that the newspapers handled the death of the dog, I sort of questioned whether or not it was a little bit overboard, a little bit over heavy. I mean, uh, I mean there are a lot of people that are killed in uh, campaigns and battles, but uh, maybe on the other hand, you can say, no, it's always, uh, we love our... Uh, our pets and the loss of a pet hurts us, but it was just strange how much coverage the death of that dog got. But uh, in a sense, he was a soldier for the Israeli army, and he helped protect us. So what can I tell you? Just one to report that the newspapers made a big deal about the death of that dog. Uh, you can judge yourself the way it was responded to. I'll be back after the break. Hello again, you're back with Jay Shapiro. In this part of the program, I want to do what I call uh, under the radar. These are a number of uh, news items that are uh, not related to each other, but they say something about Jewish life in, in general and what's happening in Israel. So I want to start with the fact that having to do with Aliyah in Ukraine and from Russia, more than 31,000 people, 31,000 from Ukraine and Russia have immigrated to Israel since the Russian forces invaded Ukraine back in February, which is a massive increase from a similar uh, period before the war. Between February and July, Israel received 12,175 new immigrants to Ukraine and 18,891 from Russia, according to the Central Bureau of Statistics. Um, all, this, all this is um, data from the Immigration Ministry. That's 318% higher than a similar period in 2019 when a total of close to 10,000 new immigrants arrived from those two countries. Now, it turns out that most of the immigrants from Russia and Ukraine are Jews, but some maybe only have close relatives who are Jewish, but under Israel's law of return, a person needs at least one Jewish grandparent to be entitled for immediate citizenship. 63% of the Ukrainian immigrants are women, while those from Russia were largely split evenly between, between men and women. Now, the fact is that the fighting in Ukraine has killed thousands of people, and it's still going on. It's devastated a number of cities and driven one-third of Ukrainians from their homes. Russia has been isolated by unprecedented Western sanctions imposed because of the invasion. Now, Israel has a large Russian-speaking population, believe it or not, of more than 1.3 million. In other words, around 15% of the population of Israel are Russian speakers. And the Statistics Bureau also said that in 2021, immigration to Israel rose nearly 30 percent uh, from 2020. Half of the immigrants came from former Soviet republics, mostly from Russia and Ukraine. About 14 percent each come from the United States and France. 
the uh, in 2019, the last year before the coronavirus pandemic, Israel recorded 33,000 immigrants. And now, of course, because of what's happening in Ukraine, we're getting a lot of immigrants from Ukraine and from Russia. The next item is really under the radar. It's something we forget about, which was very infamous at the time. Uh, on September 5th, 1972, 11 Israeli athletes were taken hostage by eight members of the Black September faction who broke into the Israeli delegation's accommodation at the Olympic Village in Munich, Germany. After gaining access to the Israeli athletes' apartments, they scaled a chain-link fence and they carried duffel bags loaded with grenades and assault rifles. The terrorists shot and killed an Israeli weightlifter and also a wrestling coach. Left with nine hostages, the next 24 hours were filled with tense negotiations between the hostage takers and the authorities. Black September demanded that in return for the athletes and coaches, 236 prisoners incarcerated in Israel should be released and transported to Egypt. Now, that was back in 1972, I remember that. Now, the victims' families have largely blamed Germany for its failure to protect the athletes, which is what has stood behind their compensation demands. In July of this year, the German government indicated that it would increase the funds given to the victims' families, and they called the sum insulting. Last November, some 21 families of the victims demanded 110 million euros in compensation from Libya over its role in the attack. The survivors said the former Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi supported and actively assisted the attackers after they escaped Munich. So the family of the victims of the 1972 Munich Olympic massacre are planning to boycott the 50th anniversary memorial which is set for September 5th in Munich because of their long-standing dispute with German authorities over the compensatory damages. This was reported, by the way, by the New York Times. So if the, the attack left 11 Israelis dead and the German policemen also died, and the families of the victims have maintained that their compensation responsibilities fall on Germany due to its failure to protect the athletes. Now, interestingly enough, our president, Isaac Herzog, is scheduled to attend the memorial in September. It's unclear if the family's decision to boycott the memorial will affect his attendance. We'll have to wait and see. Here's another uh, news item way under the headlines. The uh, legislation that aims to expand Holocaust education in New York State was signed into law two weeks ago by the governor. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce, pronounce her name. The governor is Kathy H-O-C-H-U-L. I guess it's Hochul. 
The governor uh, who took office just last August and apparently has close ties with the local Jewish community signed legislation. She signed this legislation at the Museum of Jewish Heritage in Manhattan. Um, they signed it in the presence of state officials as well as Holocaust survivors and their families. Now, this legislative package consists of three bills that require schools in New York State to provide Holocaust education. It obligates museums to acknowledge art stolen by the Nazi regime and ensure that the New York State Department of Financial Services publishes a list of financial institutions that voluntarily waive fees for Holocaust reparation payments. It appears, by the way, that anti-Semitism remains at record levels in New York State, and polls show that a lack of knowledge about the Holocaust among young people is very widespread. The, uh, so the, the Council General of Israel in New York called this uh, package uh, this, that the government has passed historic, adding that it would further Holocaust education. You have to realize something, by the way, not, just, not simply because uh, the, the Jews were the ones who were the victims of the Holocaust, but the very fact that a nation, a modern nation like Germany, would de decide to simply kill people because of their religion, that's something that should be taught today in all schools. The very fact that a modern nation could fall into such a state is, and how it got to be in that state is something that has to be taught. Holocaust education is not simply for Jews. It really is something that any democratic country, people have to learn about. The, this legislation in New York, by the way, comes as New York has seen skyrocketing rates of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitic anti hate crimes in New York City quadrupled from January 2021 to January 2022. So um, hate crimes and, and are really, really on the rise in New York State. The, a 2020 claims conference study found that New York millennials have shockingly low awareness and understanding of the Holocaust. 58% of the people asked couldn't name a concentration camp. 19% believe the Jews caused the Holocaust, and 28% believe that the Holocaust is a myth that has been exaggerated. So um, it's, it's, really, um, it's really a terrible situation. By, by the way, in April, the governor of New York announced that more than $2 million would be directed to services that benefit the 40,000 survivors of the, of the Nazi genocide who currently reside in New York State. 40% of whom live in poverty. So this is something that's really under the headlines, but something we should know about. The next item on a very, very different subject has to do with the fact that the, the U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi uh, took a trip to uh, Taiwan, had all kind of political implications that upset the Chinese and 
President Biden was leaning toward appeasing Beijing. The, uh, he said at the time that the Pelosi trip wasn't a good idea. And the New York Times reported that the Biden administration officials are try, tried to dissuade Pelosi from visiting uh, Taiwan. Now, it would, might seem at first glance that the, the Pelosi-China-Taiwan controversy has nothing to do with Israel. But it has been pointed out by uh, Stephen Flato. Stephen Flato is an attorney and the father of a young lady who was murdered in an Iranian-sponsored Palestinian terrorist attack back in 1995. And he often writes in the paper. So uh, the, he writes that there's always been a struggle between U.S. foreign policymakers between two broad approaches to international relations. One approach is that the U.S. should always stand by its allies no matter what. This is both a matter of principle and strategy. The principle is that America should do the right thing. The strategy is that letting a dictatorship such as China bully America into abandoning Taiwan will lead to other dictators bullying the, uni bullying the U.S. for other surrenders. That's one approach. The second approach is a 21st century version of the old Neville Chamberlain mindset of appeasement. Let our allies defend for themselves. That's the uh, defend for themselves. That's the idea. Protect only America's most narrow interests. Insulate the United States in, inside a military and psychological fortress and hope that the bad guys will leave the U.S. alone. So there are two approaches to foreign affairs. However, the events of the last few decades have reminded us that the world has become too small for the United States to cut itself off and close its eyes to the fate of smaller countries. Years ago, there was a Fortress America concept it was particularly popular during the 1930s, but it disappeared after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Terrorists don't always stay in Afghanistan. Sometimes they come over to the U.S. and they fly planes into the World Trade Center. So that is where Israel comes into the picture. The question of which of these two mindsets will prevail in American foreign policy and it will ultimately determine not only how America treats Taiwan, but also how America treats Israel. Now, Israel does not expect American troops to rush to its defense, but it would be counting on airlifts of U.S. weapons in the event of another Arab invasion. And by the way, I remember this really when uh, years ago, when the American airlift during one of America's, uh, one of Israel's wars, I remember being at the airport and watching dozens of American planes fly into Israel carrying much needed equipment that was quickly offloaded and taken to the front lines. I was involved in that offloading myself. I worked at the time at Israel Aircraft. Corporation, which is right next to the airport, 
and the American airlift essentially saved Israel. So, you know, we would like very much to know that we don't need American troops, never ask for American troops, but we certainly need and often expect American aid. So if there was an Arab attack, an Arab invasion of Israel, and an isolationist-minded U.S. administration might decide that political and other calculations make American involvement too risky. So Israel has some experience with what happens when political calculations outweigh principles. On the eve of the 1973 Yom Kippur War, and I remember this, Secretary of State Henry Kissinger pressured Israel not to strike first, and then he delayed arms shipments for 10 days to ensure that Israel did not win too decisive a victory. He was afraid that an Israeli defeat of the Arabs would, among other things, anger the Arabs' patron, which at that time was the Soviet Union. So what it really meant was, and I remember this myself, Israel became the sacrificial lamb to Kissinger's detent or detent policy. The idea that America should, as a matter of principle, stand by its ally, ally Israel was not part of Kissinger's mindset. Five years later, it was Taiwan's turn to become the sacrificial lamb. In December 1978, President Jimmy Carter announced that the U.S. was unilaterally abandoning its mutual defense treaty with Taiwan, terminating diplomatic relations with Taipei, and recognizing communist China as the sole legal government in all of China, including Taiwan. So the president who abandoned Taiwan in 1978 was the same president who condemned Israel's presence in Jerusalem. He embraced the Palestinian cause. He shipped advanced weapons to Arab regimes that were still at war with Israel and pressured Israel to prematurely withdraw from its security belt in southern Lebanon. By the time he left office, Jimmy Carter was so highly regarded by American Jews as the least friendly to Israel president in U.S. history. So it's all a matter of mindset. A U.S. administration that views American allies as expendable will certainly see Israel as expendable also. A president who will abandon Taiwan will also abandon Israel. That's why Pelosi's trip was important. This, that one trip may seem like a small matter, but its ramifications will be felt by America's allies around the world. The question is, can Israel rely on the Biden administration's support if Israel gets into a tough situation? And that's something that uh, is yet to be, hopefully that that tough situation won't come about. But we have to keep our eye open because uh, your, friends, your friend in need is a friend indeed. And I'll finish this segment of program with something totally unrelated to what I've said so far. It turns out that Israeli researchers have discovered a method to predict earthquakes 48 hours ahead. 
with 80% accuracy, and they detailed this in a scientific journal called Remote Sensing. They studied changes in the Earth's ionosphere, which that sliver of atmosphere which meets the vacuum of space, and the Ario University, which is in the West Bank, uh, they have a development uh, uh, branch research team was uh, able to evaluate potential precursors to several major earthquakes that occurred in the past 20 years. So here we have a, um, a research group in the West Bank can tell us with an 80% accuracy whether or not there'll be an earthquake. They also predict when an earthquake will not occur which is, uh, I'm not quite sure what that means, but it's nice to know. Uh, I'll be back after. You're back with Jay Shapiro. In this segment of the program, I want to do a number of items that I call under the radar. They are news items that don't get the big headlines. They don't even appear in the front pages of the newspapers, but they describe what is happening in Jewish life or in things relating to Jewish life. The first thing I want to touch upon is the fact that a, a Dutch municipality has renamed a park that had been named for a mayor who helped the Nazis hunt for his city's Jews during the Second World War. The municipality of a city called Hoge Evin, I guess that's how you pronounce it, it's H-O-G-E-V, E-E-N. It's a city of about 55,000 people, roughly 80 miles northeast of Amsterdam. And last month, it renamed Mayor Tialma Park, according to a report on a new site. The new name is Municipal Park. It's no longer called Mayor Tialma Park. In 2020, a local historian discovered that Tialma, who had been the mayor of that city for 30 years until 1958, was the first mayor in Nazi-occupied Netherlands to hand over a list of local Jews after the German army invaded Holland in 1940. There were about 250 names of Jews on the list. In 1951, that same city had only 27 Jews, according to the Jewish Historical Museum of Amsterdam. Now he, that mayor, shared the list voluntarily, a, according to a local politician, whose party initiated the research into his wartime record. The, uh, the opposition party had for years lobbied for a more critical approach to the legacy of Tialma, who many have considered a model mayor. The park was named for him shortly after his death in 1985. Several years after World War II, the city under Talmud took over part of the local Jewish cemetery and paved a road on it. That part of the cemetery was returned to the Jewish community in 2019. 
There's an Amsterdam-based uh, group called the Institute for War, Holocaust, and Genocide Studies. Earlier this year, they confirmed the research done in that city by local historian, prompting the municipality to change the park's name on July 26. In other words, a Dutch city renames a square it had named for a mayor who betrayed the Jews. Other than that, apparently he was an excellent mayor, had been a mayor and re-elected many times for over 30 years. But he was the first mayor in the Netherlands to hand over the local Jews to the Nazis. So after all these years, this man who was apparently otherwise a respected mayor for over 30 years, they renamed the square because he betrayed the Jews who lived in his town. A very good move. Better late than never. The next item, unrelated to the first, has to do with the fact the Jewish students have called for Ben and Jerry's to evacuate occupied Vermont land. In a letter sent to the chairperson of Ben and Jerry's earlier this week, more than 1,000 Israeli university students demanded that the Ben & Jerry Ice Cream Company recognize the illegally occupied land where their Vermont factory sits and evacuate it immediately. The students said they were deeply concerned about safeguarding human rights and the oppression of indigenous people in North America. The letter was written on behalf of what was called the Students for Justice in America. In America. Their research and investigation, according to their letter, have determined that the land that Ben and Jerry's corporation operates from Vermont, which is 30 Community Drive in South Burlington, and two other plants there, is territory that belongs to the Abenaki people, A-B-E-N-A-K-I. According to the letter, this land, like many other territories in Vermont, was taken from the indigenous tribes during its early conquest by French and British colonialists and then the American military. The Abenaki tribe had lived on these lands continuously for thousands of years before the invasion by the foreign white traders and settlers. The European colonialists and the Americans intentionally killed off the Abenaki people through warfare and the spreading of diseases such as smallpox, typhus, and influenza. The letter goes on to say, We have concluded that your company, Ben & Jerry's, occupation of the Abenaki lands is illegal, and we believe it is wholly inconsistent with the stated values that Ben & Jerry's purports to maintain. Ironically, in July of the last year, 
You announced that you would discontinue the sale of your products in Israel because you object to the Jewish state allegedly occupying Palestinian territories. Yet, at the same time, you ignore your own occupation of the land that belongs to the Abenaki. That is what the letter said. Citing the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples passed by the United Nations General Assembly in 2007, the letter goes on to say, Article 26 provides that Indigenous Peoples have the right to the lands, territories, and resources which they have traditionally owned, occupied, or otherwise used or acquired, and have the right to own, use, develop, and control the lands, territories, and resources that they possess by reason of traditional ownership or other traditional occupation or use, as well as those which they have otherwise acquired. Accordingly, we, the Students for Justice in America, demand that Ben and Jerry's immediately evacuate the Vermont properties that it occupies in South Burlington, Waterbury, and St. Albans and return them to the Abenaki people. Your company has no right to these stolen territories. Justice, morality, and boycotts are not just slogans and anti-Semitic weapons for your food company to point at the Jewish community in Israel. Justice and morality must begin at home. That was the conclusion of the letter sent by the Jewish students to Ben and Jerry's. The letter was sent to Ben and Jerry's chairwoman, uh, Tarada Mittal. It was support, supported by Shura Tadin, a Tel Aviv-based human rights organization dedicating to safeguarding the lives of the Jewish community, seeking justice for the victims of terrorism worldwide, and combating the initiatives of the BDS, the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement against Israel. The president of Shura Tadin is Nitzana Darshan, Darshan Leitner, and she said that Ben and Jerry's blatant hypocrisy has now been revealed by the Israeli students. Ben and Jerry's is a corporation led by a BDS extremist, which has hijacked the entire company and manipulated its core values to fit their own anti-Israel agenda. Now, what happened was, uh, last year, in July of last year, the ice cream company said it would no longer allow its products to be sold to Israelis in the West Bank. The boycott, in effect, was against all of Israel. This was because of local laws against location-based discrimination it would not have the uh, owner of the, uh, the licensee the, of the American company to limit his sales to one side of the green line. So, when Jer after Ben and Jerry's took this, uh, made this announcement, Jewish and pro-Israel organizations took action, pro protesting the decision and trying to find legal ways around it. Now, several American states have laws meant to discourage the BDS movement began the process of divesting or stopping the birch projects 
from Unilever, which Ben and Jerry's parent company. So uh, the uh, in, in addition to all this, by it's very interesting. Uh, the foreign ministry here entered negotiations with Unilever. Uh, and they filed a lawsuit in the U.S. District Court in New Jersey. And in June, Unilever said it had reached a settlement with the ice cream company's early license, and it ended the boycott. So the uh, it's very sad. It's interesting, the, the Abenaki, who I never heard of myself, were in, are indigenous people of the northeastern woodlands of Canada and the United States, and their name, you, uh, Abenaki, means people of the dawn land. The homeland extends across most of what is now southern New England, southern Quebec, and the southern Canadian mountains. The um, Just as an amount of histor- uh, case of historical interest, Prior to the English colonial settlements in New England, the Abenaki tribes lived in lands of extended families for most of the year. They come together during the spring and summer at seasonal villages near rivers or somewhere along the coast for planting and fishing. During the winter, they lived in small groups further inland. So, uh, as referenced to the letter to Ben and Jerry, the Abenaki tribe actually they were a nation. They fell victim to European colonialism and the the Europeans intentionally spread disease to these indigenous tribes. It's estimated that prior to the arrival of Europeans to their land, the Abenaki tribes had about 40,000 people. So, uh, they, after the Europeans came, they had two major epidemics. So the bottom line is that Jewish students are saying, if you and Ben and Jerry's don't want to sell uh, your product here in Israel, what you call the occupied land, uh, you better look at your own history. You yourselves are living and operating in occupied land. It's very interesting. By the way, the letter... Uh, to them was signed by more than a thousand Israeli university students. I don't know who organized this letter, but I think it's really interesting, really under the headlines. And since we're talking about boycotts of Israel, I have another news item from the opposite end of the world. The Melbourne University Student Union, Melbourne University, of course, is in Australia, They passed a motion last week regarding the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and they supported Palestine and the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement against Israel. The motion by the, the students accused Israel of apartheid and ethnic cleansing, so Jewish organizations, of course, have criticized the motion the uh, and they revealed that pretty much revealed that Jewish students in Australia are suffering from death threats and uh, other attacks. The Melbourne University Student Union has decided to adopt a number of stances and actions condemning the ongoing ethnic cleansing of Palestinians, according to the official document released by the union.
They say the uh, union, the Melbourne University Student Union, supports the self-determination of the Palestinian people and the right to engage in self-defense against their occupiers. They added that it deems the use of Zionism to justify the illegal occupation of Palestine is racist and colonial. Furthermore, they recognize Israel as an apartheid state, basing this, they claim, on the allegations of prominent human rights organizations such as B'Tselem and Human Rights Watch. The Union also criticized the Australian government for its support for Israel and its ongoing crimes, including occupation, settlement, expansion, and ethnic cleansing. So, um, even though the Jewish-Australian organizations see this decision as anti-Semitic, the Union voted... Uh, to to condemn any and all forms of anti-Semitism. They stated that the Union supports an academic boycott of Israel. They call on the university to to participate in an academic boycott, cut ties with Israeli institutions, with Israeli research and academics, to be in harmony with the Palestinians' call for boycott as a contribution towards upholding international law, furthering the struggle for freedom, justice, and equality. So um, they also put out a press release in which they said, as one of the biggest universities in Australia, the University of Melbourne's monetary and academic connections to the state of Israel have helped legitimize the narrative created by the state of Israel. Now, so, this also happens to be an Australasian Union of Jewish students, and of course, they came out against what the other student union did. They said, we reject the utterly false and ludicrous version of history set out by this other organization. So it's very interesting. Now you have two student organizations in the universities in uh, Australia who are going public in their support and their uh, lack of support for the state of Israel, claiming that Israel is an apartheid state. The the Jewish group said that the motion by the other group lays bare the real objective of this campaign, which is the disappearance of Israel as a Jewish state and the removal from the land of most of the Jewish population by one means or another. Jewish students are determined to fight against this insidious form of racism, fight back against anyone who is making Jewish students feel unsafe on Australian university campuses. And we will use every legal means that we can. And they further commend the university administration for having condemned a similar motion earlier this year. So it's very interesting. Way down in uh, in Australia, thousands, tens of thousands of miles away from Israel, they're having this battle between a pro-Jewish group anti-Jewish, anti-Israel, of course, means anti-Jewish. The um, 
It's pretty disingenuous to suggest that this motion by this anti-Israel group is simply about criticism of the Israeli government or support for Palestinians. It effectively advocates the eradication of Israel's estate and denies the basic right of national self-determination for the Jewish people. So that motion by this student group is really racism, and its language drips with hatred. So we have to reject lies, and they, they, they have to reject the denial of Jewish connection to Israel, and we have to stand by the Jewish students who face constant anti-Semitism and hatred on campus. Uh, they're being hated because of who they are, because of their family, their ethnic, cultural, religious connections to Israel, and that is something we simply must come out against. One would think that uh, university students uh, were more knowledgeable in the facts and the history, but it turns out that they aren't, and that says something about the uh, level of the education of the students, not only in Melbourne, but in a lot of, lot of universities, including the United States. I'll be back after the break. You're back with Jay Shapiro. You know, it is interesting that a society can be judged by whom it honors and whom its heroes are. As a matter of fact, I saw a quote by John Kennedy, who said that a society or a nation reveals itself not only by the men it produces, but also by the men it honors, the men it remembers. And that's true. This is not only true of nations, but of any society, and even parts of that society. Who do they honor? Whom do they lionize? You can learn a lot about people by seeing who their heroes are. If you have a society that celebrates scientists, you know what kind of a society it is. Or if you can see a society that celebrates celebrities, it says something else about that society. And by the way, that reminds you, I watch now what's happening in America and the people that the that are considered celebrities, and I think it's a sign that the United States is in great trouble. Do, the, do you honor athletes or do you honor teachers? Uh, so that brings me to what I wanted to speak about because of something that happened several weeks ago. Uh, there was a terror attack, and it was reported that Palestinian terror groups applauded the attack, and they called for more heroic operations. Now, what were they honoring? And what were they asking to be repeated? A Palestinian terrorist went on a shooting spree in the middle of the night in Jerusalem. He wounded eight innocent people, including critically wounding an American Jewish woman her 26 week of pregnancy who was shot in the stomach. And uh, they had to remove the child. I don't know uh, what happened to the child. This happened several weeks ago, and I didn't uh, see in the newspaper, although I'm sure it was reported. 
Now, a reaction of a segment of Palestinian society called this operation of shooting innocent Jews heroic, and therefore the one who did it is a hero. Now, those well-meaning people around the world who can't understand why the Israelis and Palestinians can't find a way to solve their problems and move on, they have to look no further than the, these headlines to understand the problem we have with the Palestinians. How is peace possible with those who view as heroic someone who shoots a pregnant woman in her belly? How is peace possible with people who put in their heroes the person who carried out an attack on innocent people? What kind of accomplishment, accommodation can possibly be made with those who view an act so despicable as that person who did it is a hero? Now, there, uh, there are some who say, well, you know, Israelis also uh, killed the uh, killed uh, Palestinians. But you notice the Palestinians who have been killed by Israelis have been killed by the army in operations to prevent terrorism. They weren't just going there to shoot. Invariably, it happens that civilians will be killed in, a, in an operation against terrorism. The Israeli army does, it, does it, its best not to kill civilians. The, but these deaths of Palestinian civilians that happens during Israeli army operations are intentional. They're not legitimate. Uh, they're legitimate actions of the army but there's no, they do not go with the intention of killing any civilians. There, there have been some cases of Jewish terrorism, very few, but to compare the numbers of Jewish terrorism to the uh, Arab terrorism, or the way they're responded to by the public, uh, there's no comparison. When there are a few instances of Jewish terror, they are condemned by the official government of Israel and by the news, as well as the vast majority of the company of the country, because they are repulsed by such action. When a Jew does something, an act of terror, which is rare, but when it happens, it is condemned by the Israeli public. Just the opposite of what happens when Arab terrorists kill Jews, they are heroes to the Arab public. And that, this is the, these are the facts of life. The, uh, the, the Palestinian Authority, when it was asked to comment on the fact that an Arab terrorist had shot eight innocent Israelis, including a pregnant woman, the, the um, newspapers reported that the Palestinian Authority did not immediately comment on the attack. So uh, that, that is not an answer, that's an excuse. 
Undoubtedly, there are some decent people among the Arabs, there have to be, and they don't like this kind of attack. However, their voices are not heard. You can ask yourself a question. After a terrorist attack by Arabs, by Palestinians on Jews, where are the social media posts in Arabic saying, not in our name? Where are the East Jerusalem Arabs marching down the main street, Salah Hadin Street, carrying signs expressing sympathy for the Jewish victims of the attack? When those voices are ever heard, there will be a glimmer of hope that we can have peace. But until that happens, and when the only voices Israelis hear after Palestinian tax are the voices of men distributing sweets or praising the actions as heroic and calling for more and more of these actions, any talk of accommodation seems discouragingly remote and hollow. As long as the Palestinians praise terrorism, there will not be peace with the Palestinians. If you look at the school system, the way they educate their kids, and you look at whom they consider to be heroes, you can see that the, the idea of peace with the Palestinians is in the far distant future. Their educa- educational system and the ones they choose to be their heroes show exactly what they are and what they're thinking. As a matter of fact, I think one is the result of the other. Because of the education they receive, saying that the Jews and the Jewish state have no right to exist, therefore they praise and applaud terrorism. The bottom line is the educational system in the Palestinian society is the basis for whether or not there can be any peace with the Palestinians in the foreseeable future. You hear very little about their educational system, which is supported, by the way, by the UN. You hear very little about it, but it is the basics and the, the source of whether there can be peace at all with the Palestinians. As long as they are taught that the state of Israel and the Jews have no right to exist, there's absolutely no possibility of any kind of peace with them. It is unfortunate, but it is true. Now I want to switch gears to a totally different topic. Again, it's one of those things that uh, appears far under the headlines, but I think it's important. There's a hospital in the uh, northern part of Tel Aviv. It's not one of the biggest hospitals in Israel, and it's called Ichalov, Ichalov Hospital. And uh, two weeks ago, Tel Aviv, the, the Ichalov Hospital inaugurated a um, an emergency hospital uh, and in the presence of the uh, prime minister and the president. Now, this three-story, 8,000-square-meter facility turns out is the largest emergency room in the world, and it's named after the philanthropist uh, named Sylvan Adams, 
who donated $28 million for this emergency room. Now, this emergency room is not just big, but it contains a number of new technologies, uh, including facial recognition station, a digital self-registration, which allows people to self-register using facial recognition. Also, they have something called self-triage, which enables patients to check their own temperature, their own blood pressure, their pulse, and blood oxygen saturation before being assigned to medical professional for treatment. In addition, they have mobile robots, which assist patients in navigating the emergency hospital as well as departments outside the facility. There's an app that will provide real-time reports to the patient about their status. The hospital has dedicated sections for care to be provided determined by the patient's condition and also, and listen to this, the the the, the uh, sections will be cited by their psychiatric classification. This includes a short-term hospitalization department and a room for the acute care of victims of sexual assault. So all these technologies will enable streamlining of patient assessment. It'll reduce waiting times, and it'll provide more efficient and effective provision of medical care. Now, this new modern section of the hospital has 100 monitor beds, the largest number of beds in emergency care departments in Israel. The emergency room treats complicated cases on a large scale and therefore the challenge of providing outstanding service is significant. According to the president of the hospital, they're determined to change and prove that it's possible to demand and receive quick, good treatment even during busy periods. The, the This is essentially a medical and technological revolution in which guarantees the best and quiz, quickest possible treatment in Israel. So, the it's interesting. Uh, more than 250,000 uh, Israelis go to the emergency wing every year. Now, the guy who provided this, his name is Sylvan Adams, and he he commented that he's happy to provide the residents in the state of Israel with the largest, most advanced emergency room of its kind. It has innovative technology, the worldview that places the patient at the center, and a high level of infrastructure so that it's an advanced level of service and treatment for the benefit of the people of Israel. So here you have a, a hospital most people don't even know about. I happen to spend time there, but everybody knows Hadassah and other big hospitals here in Israel. Ichalav is considered one of the smaller ones, and now it's got really the largest and most modern emergency room. And again, that speaks well not only for the state of Israel, 
but the person who donated, who paid for it, who understood the need and, and, and answered that need. So that speaks well of him, and it speaks well of the hospital for planning this kind of emergency room so that this philanthropist can find a place to make his money really do good. To this, I add a, another new item. It turns out, different subject, 54 founders of American startups worth, we're talking about the the startups, you know, with the new technologies, etc. 54 founders of American startups worth $1 billion or more are from Israel. This is according to a report from a something called the National Foundation for American Policy. They found out, they checked which startups in the United States were founded by people from other countries. Turns out that 66 are from India, 27 from the United Kingdom, 22 from Canada, and 21 from China, interestingly enough. The the conclusion of the report is that more than half of the startups valued at $1 billion or more in the United States were founded by immigrants. So, Unfortunately, I, I, don't, I don't know if unfortunately is the right, the right word, but these startups that were founded by Israelis are, were founded by Israelis who founded these companies in the United States, and they themselves uh, decided to stay in the United States. We have a lot of startups here in Israel, but it turns out that Israelis are very good startups even when they're not living in Israel. Another topic, very different topic, but one I think should interest the listeners, there's a school in Israel called Ma'ale. It's a film school in Jerusalem. Uh, my own son went there. My son uh, is involved in uh, movies and television programs as a uh, director and as a um, um, uh, doing a lot of work in, in that field. Uh, he went to this school called Ma'ale. Now, it turns out that a movie by the graduates from Ma'ale Film School won the British Academy of Film and Television Award in the student film live action category at a ceremony that was held about two weeks ago in Los Angeles. The film was made by a young girl, just a graduate. Her name is Shalamet Lifshitz and another girl named Oreo Berkowitz. And they won the 2022 BAFTA Student Award. That's the first time that award ceremony has included a finalist representing Israel. The film combines drama and animation, and it's based on the director's memories as a granddaughter of a Holocaust survivor who recorded her life in a personal diary during the Holocaust, and her granddaughter turned it into a um, into a movie. So you have a Jerusalem film school, uh, one that I'm a little bit associated with because my own son went there, and they won a big international contest, and that's something we can be proud of. And one final thing at this section of the program, the and this is something really under the headlines, but I find it fascinating. The uh, 
The U.S. Supreme Court's decision to overcome the Roe v. Wade case that legalized abortion nationwide has some students rethinking their higher education plans as states rush to ban or curtail abortion. They interviewed a bunch of students and college advisors, and it's the. Uh, it turns out that students hesitated to attend schools in places with different political leanings than their own. Uh, Recent moves by conservative states on issues like abortion and lesbian and gay and bisexual rights have deepened the country's polarization. For some students, the restrictions raise fears that they won't be able to get an abortion if they need one or if they will face discrimination uh, if they go to get an abortion. In other words, these college students in the United States are considering the ease ease with which they can get an abortion while they're going to college as one of the uh, reasons they'll choose a particular particular school. I think this subtly, or maybe not so subtly, says something about the level of the students going to universities today. They don't just look at the academic accomplishments of the college, they look at whether or not they can get an abortion while they're attending the college. And uh, I think that that says something about the United States, and it says something about the American students. Uh, What it says exactly, I leave to listeners. Uh, Thank you for listening. Until next week, Jay Shapiro signing off. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips. With scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candlelighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. Howdy, this is Rita from League City, Texas, now living in Israel. And though my heart may have belonged to Texas, it now belongs to Israel and all the fantastic show hosts at Israel News Talk Radio. Hi, this is Michael Solomon from Kiryat Arba, Israel. And why do I love listening to Israel News Talk Radio? Because I love listening to the interesting interviews they do and their news reporting that most other media sources don't cover. Hey, this is Nicole Eko from Malmo, Sweden. It gets pretty cold here in Sweden, so I love cuddling up with a warm cup of tea while I listen to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, everybody, this is Frank Garrett from Tennessee. Me and my dog Buster really love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. <laughs> You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. opinion and more you're listening to israel news talk radio 